Welcome back to Bible time. Colossians 3, 2. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us today. Please fill me with your spirit. Use me, Father, in spite of all that I am. Apart from you, I can do nothing, Father. And I plead the blood of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, Lord, where he rose from the dead against all the power of Satan and hell. I ask you, Lord, to loose captives and open the eyes of the blind through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So set your affections on things above. In Colossians 3, 2, not on things on the earth. This comes in the context of chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along there in your Bible. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now the context here of things of the earth is going to deal with um, what he says there. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. To set something is to place it in a way that it will not move. It's very simple. You set a glass on a table. You set eggs on the counter. When you set something, you don't want them to roll away. You set them on a flat surface on a, in a stable place where you want them to stay until they are moved purposely if they need moved. Now here he says to set your affection on things above. Another application of the word set is concrete sets. It sets up. You pour the concrete, it sets up, and it's hard, and it doesn't go anywhere, you hope. That's the goal when you pour concrete. You don't want it cracking or splitting or sliding down the hill. So usually you do a lot of work leveling the area, putting gravel down, making sure that it's all just right, and then you set the concrete. And you set it flat, you set it with whatever slope it needs where it does need it, you set it with footers, you set it with um, fault lines in it, you set it in a way that it will not move, and then you build your house. Now here we're being instructed by God Almighty through his Apostle Paul to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So think about this for a moment. If you are setting your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, but then you walk into a store and see something on the earth, and your affections immediately attach to it, then were your affections really set to begin with on things above? No. And that's the idea that we are being commanded here is to set our affections on things above. If they're truly set, they're not going to be rolling back onto the things of the earth. Our affections need to be set, to be established, to be grounded to where they're not going to move. And if you don't do this, you will be rendered useless for God if you are a Christian, and you will go to hell if you're a lost man. And you think you're a Christian, here you are going along your life, but your affections are on things of the earth. It's very telling. We looked at yesterday the word if, and when it says, if ye then be risen with Christ, and we talked about how your obsession proves your condition. 
Your obsession proves your condition. And we're being instructed now to have an obsession on things above, to set our affection on things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. In a way, this is a continuation and a furtherance of what we studied yesterday. It's uh, as will the next couple verses, uh, as the next ver couple verses will be as well. Set your affections on things above. Now, if you set your affection on a, on the sand and your affection is a house, what did Jesus say would happen to the house built upon the sand? When the rains descend and the floods come and beat upon the house, what will happen? It will fall and great will be the fall of it. But he says, if you, everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is like a man that built his house upon the rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and beat upon that house and it fell not because it was founded upon the rock. So here we're being commanded to set our affection, our affections on things above. Now, the affections are those things that drive us. They, the, uh, the affections deal with the soul and its reaction to life around us. Now, we've been talking here and I've been talking with my children about affections some. And some of the things that we have noticed that the affections will bring out joy in your emotions. Affections will cause you to act willfully and make decisions based on those affections that you might not other, otherwise make. And affections will also be intellectual affections. And we use the example of an antique dresser. If you take an antique dresser and say, well, I'd like to turn this into a bathroom sink. And then all of a sudden, your great-grandma walks in and says, Hey, that dresser there that you have sitting in the living room, and she doesn't know you're about to cut it up. And she says, That was my great-great-grandmother's dresser. And it came over from this faraway land that our family immigrated from, and it came on a wooden ship. And they hauled it on carts halfway across the nation. And it's been to 17 different states and from coast to coast three times. And so-and-so had it and so-and-so had it. And your great-great-aunt so-and-so had it. And your great-uncle so-and-so had it. And then your, and then your um, second cousin twice removed had it. And it finally made it back around. And then you got a whole... And I'm so glad to see you taking care of that dresser. Well, all of a sudden, you're, that intellectual information that just got added, gave that dresser different value and it will change what you will to do with it. Now your will and your mind and your emotions will change the direction that you go with that dresser because your affections have been set on it differently. Your affections can be set through your mind, your affections can be set through your will, and your affections can be set through your emotions. The job of selling a salesman's job is to set people's affections on the thing that he is selling. Whatever the salesman is selling, his job is to make you love it until you can't bear not to buy it, no matter what price he asks you for it. But here God tells us, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God commands us to set our affections on things above, to seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now go to Revelation 
chapter 1, we're going to start looking at some of the things that are above, and then we'll compare it to some things on the earth. We'll look at an Old Testament an Old Testament character who set his affection on things above and what God said about him in the New Testament. And then finally, we'll just look at some um, final warnings and hopefully take heed and obey the gospel, obey the word of God that God is giving us today. So Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ here is speaking to John on the Isle of Patmos and gives him the revelation. And verse 10 says, I, um, John speaking, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now he turns around to see and he says, I saw... The And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And he gives the letters to the seven churches. We're not going to dive into all of the parts of those letters. We just want to look at the blessings that were given and promised to those churches. Maybe someday we'll study them out um, in more detail. Now that this being that is seen by John is Jesus Christ is evident by the fact that he was uh, that he liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore the fact that he liveth perfect present tense and yet was dead and now liveth forevermore proves that he is Jesus Christ who is the only one who has ever done that so that is one way that we know that is Jesus Christ. There are many other ways, many other scriptures. One of those scriptures would come in Revelation 22, and we'll read it later when we get there, how that he, he himself says that he is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and then says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel. So we will see that later whenever we get to that passage. But here, Jesus Christ to the, to the churches sends these letters to the churches and gives seven blessings to him that overcometh. Now, before we dive into that, we need to just look at what it means to overcome. The Bible says in 1 John 5, verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. This is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, it says here that by believing in Jesus Christ, I kind of stopped there in the middle. Um, let's go ahead and finish that. 
And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. He that believeth on the son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life and this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life and he that hath the, not the son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. So to overcome in the word of God is absolutely, clearly, undeniably linked to one thing. And that is believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now if you think that believing Jesus is the Son of God is like believing in Santa Claus. Some kind of mental ascent that has no effect on your life. If you think that you believe in Jesus but you have another Jesus. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. You've carved out a Jesus in your own image. Then your belief is a vain belief and a false belief. But if you truly believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that He is who He says He is, that He is God Almighty, who was in the beginning with God, who was God, who is God, who always was and always will be, that Jesus Christ is God who was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you believe that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins, and his burial and his resurrection on the third day, that Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sins and that he alone is the way to heaven. You turn to God the Bible way. You believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with thy mouth that God hath raised him from the dead. The Bible says, thou shalt be saved. And if that is you, then you have already overcome the world. And to him that overcometh are all these promises in the word of God. Now there's an overcoming of the world and there's an overcoming of circumstances that a Christian faces. There's an overcoming for salvation and there's an overcoming for reward. So there are more levels to this than just your salvation. But if anybody tries to take this and twist it to mean you must do good works to be saved, they do not know Christ. They do not know the gospel. They have missed it and they have not overcome. You can overcome circumstances for reward thinking that your reward is salvation and you will die and go to hell. But if you overcome by believing in the Son of Jesus Christ, you can fail to overcome circumstances and you will, your work will be burned and you will suffer loss. But the Bible says, nevertheless, your soul shall be saved and you die and go to heaven because you overcame by believing in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So whereas the man that did the good works and overcame the world and he brought under his flesh and he mortified his members on the earth and he fasted and he prayed and he told people about Jesus, but he never submitted to the righteousness of God in Christ by turning in repentance from his sins and his dead works and believed on God through faith alone for salvation, that man with all his good works will be counted an offender in heaven because he did not believe in the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And the man that hath the Son of God hath life, even if he looks like a train wreck, 
and you think there's no way that man's saved and God's chastening him his whole life and he never does really get to a place of major victory, but he truly believed and truly repented. God will take him out of this world. There is a sin unto death and God will take him out of this world. He will not receive many rewards, but he will have life if he has the son. Those are not contradictory statements. Read your Bible. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And the greatest sin that any man can commit, the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, has everything to do with rejecting the wooing of the Holy Spirit to draw you to Christ in repentance of your sins. And if you reject the wooing of the Holy Spirit, if you reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit deals with your heart and shows you Jesus Christ, you may have heard about Jesus a thousand times, but when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts your heart of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and you push away the Holy Ghost for the last time, you have committed at that point the unpardonable sin. I can't tell you when that is, and you probably won't know either. I will tell you this. If you have a desire to know Christ, and you are trying to get to Christ, and you're reading the Bible trying to be saved, but you just don't feel faith in your heart, keep pressing on. The man who crosses God's deadline cannot seek even when he tries to seek. And I have met men who've testified of being in that condition. I've heard many testimonies of others who have cried out even on their deathbed that they were going to hell but could not repent, could not believe, had no faith left because they had pushed away Jesus Christ for the last time. I don't get to say when that is and you don't either. <coughs> now, now that we talked about all that, we get into this overcoming, this overcoming. Some of this is for reward. Some of this is for um, the overcoming for salvation. But in any case, um, these overcomings in Revelation chapter 2 will help us to set our affections on things above. So we're going to look at this. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Go to 2.11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. 2 verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now these rewards are to him that overcometh. And you overcome by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God biblically. Um, verse 26 of chapter 2, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. How many of you have ever gotten a star for your birthday? Oh, there you go. That star, that's your star. Well, that would do no good for somebody. Some romantic might say that to his girlfriend. He's trying to get her to marry him. Oh, there's that star. That's your star. I'm giving it to you. What good does that do? 
has absolutely no practical application. And what on earth does this mean that he will give him the morning star? We know that Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. But as far as actually practically understanding what this is saying, this is a little bit beyond me. I will give him the morning star. He says here, look at chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcometh the same should be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Look at verse 21. To him that overcometh, Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne? Now, these are some things that are above, and I want to just take a moment and meditate on these with you. Uh, these things encompass every need and every fulfillment that we could ever want. And one of the things that he told us there is that we would eat of the tree of life. Now, imagine that, that, there's, that we would actually have access to the tree of life. Do you remember when Adam and Eve broke God's law and they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and God set a flaming sword and a cherubim at the opening of the garden so that the man could not go back and eat of the tree of life? So here in this tree of life, this encompasses eternal life and it encompasses all of the good that God ever wanted to give to Adam. All of the blessings of the perfect creation of God and the fact that it's a tree and that you get to eat of it. Did you know that the Bible says having food and raiment therewith be content? Food is a very necessary thing. Who here likes food? Who wants to go all day without food? Who wants to go a week without food? That doesn't sound very fun, does it? Now, God here in heaven has food, and he has the tree of life. And this deals with the fact that in heaven, you're going to have a physical body that is resurrected, just like Jesus' body was resurrected. Let's think about some things that are above for just a minute. Let's think about this. A physical body that can eat, and there will be a tree. Who here likes trees? I love trees. I, come, I live in the forest. I love trees. I like being around trees. I like the way the wind sounds in the trees. I love the green leaves. I like to climb trees. I like to hunt critters in the trees and through the trees. And I love the trees. I like to be around them. So here are these things that are above. There's going to be at least one tree, the tree of life. And the Bible talks about other trees that will bear all manner of fruits, all seasons, all year round, every one in his month. There will be special trees, and there will be fruit on those trees. So this deals with eating. Now, God is saying, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. On the earth we have eating, but God's saying there's better eating coming. There's better food coming. Now, if this life was the only time that you got to eat, then you would want to eat whatever you could eat and get all the enjoyment you can out of eating. But if you know that there's better food coming, that there's better enjoyment of eating coming, then you can pass up a meal to draw an eye unto God. And it's not such a big deal. And that's the whole point. If we will set our affection on things above, it changes the way that we live. So here he promises the tree of life. And not just the tree, but to eat of the tree of life. He also talks about eating the hidden manna in one of those verses that we just read. Now, how many of you remember the manna in the wilderness? 
How many of you have ever thought it would be pretty cool to go outside and find manna and be able to eat it and see what it was like? Anybody ever think that? How many of you right now think that would be pretty neat? <clears throat> well, the hidden manna will be eaten in heaven. Now, we know that Jesus was the bread that came down from heaven, and Jesus will be our fulfillment in heaven. But listen to me. Don't let somebody spiritualize away absolutely everything in the Bible. Not only is Jesus the bread that came down from heaven, but there is hidden manna to eat in heaven. There's going to be bread in heaven. Jesus said that he would eat no more of it till he, came, till he ate it in his kingdom. And he's going to eat again in the kingdom. There's going to be bread. It looks like there's going to be fish. looks like there's going to be honey. There's going to be things to eat in heaven. There's heavenly food to eat. Another thing that he speaks of in this place is, um, well, actually in Revelation 21, the water of life. And that carries over into Revelation 22. And then in Ezekiel, it talks about a river flowing from the temple. Revelation 22, verse 1, talks about a, temp a river flowing from the city of God or there in the city of God. And it has healing water. And he says, whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. Now here on earth, we have water. We talked yesterday about the Yangtze River, if that's how you say it, out there in China, the old Yellow River. And Hudson Taylor trying to take care of his wife with that dirty, muddy water. There's other rivers that are famous. The Amazon River is a famous river. India is known for some very famous rivers. And most rivers have a lot of mud. America has the Mississippi River. It's a great, big, wide, brown, muddy river. Brown and muddy. It's moving along so much water you can't hardly even imagine where all that water came from. It's mind-boggling to see that water just keep coming and coming and coming. But that water cannot give you any more than temporary life. And that water can become infected with organisms and bacteria that will cause you to be sick and possibly even die. But in heaven, we have the water of life. There is healing water in heaven. And that ties in with the promise that he gave the churches that he that overcometh will not be hurt of the second death. There will be no pain. There will be no dying. There will be no hurt of the second death. Now here on earth, we love life. And we like to stay alive, but how many of you have ever gotten hurt? Anybody? Ever gotten hurt? Most of you here, and the other ones aren't thinking, or they're off thinking about something else, hopefully meditating on what we're talking about here today, aren't you? Now, if you've been hurt, you know the value of not being hurt anymore. And God says, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. No pain and no dying. He says they'll be clothed in white raiment. And again, having food and raiment, therewith be content. So there in heaven, we will have white raiment. Now, all of this is designed to change the way that we see this world. If we have heavenly raiment, then we need not be concerned about earthly raiment. If we have heavenly food, then we need not be concerned about earthly food. If we have heavenly water, we need not be concerned about earthly water. We have things to set our affection on that are much greater, that are much higher. Now, we have to live on this earth, and so that necessitates getting some water and getting a drink and getting some food and eating it every now and then. It necessitates having some food, some clothing and things like that. But this is what Jesus is talking about um, whenever he said to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
God's kingdom has all these things. And if you're seeking God's kingdom, do you honestly believe that God will let you do without those things that are necessary for you to have in order to do his will? It's absolutely preposterous. What we have on earth cannot even compare to what is in heaven. The comparison falls, you, even, even looking at it as a comparison, it falls short. I'm struggling here today because I cannot express to you the difference, the magnitude of the difference between heavenly water and earthly water, between heavenly food and earthly food, between heavenly raiment and earthly raiment. You meet somebody that's wearing all the fads and fashions of this day and they're spending all their money on fancy clothes and, and fancy accessories and trying to look their sharpest and trying to look their best all the time, always concerned about their appearance, and they've missed this completely. We have heavenly raiment that is going to make Gucci and Prada and all the biggest brands on the earth look like trash. The heavenly raiment that we have will make Egyptian cotton look like nothing. It'll make the silk of cotton look like nothing. It'll make the finest raiment look like nothing. The best linens, the best cottons, the best fabrics that have ever been made, the synthetics fabrics, none of it can even compare to the clothing, the white raiment that we'll be wearing in heaven. Did you see the raiment that Christ was wearing? There in Revelation chapter 1. It says that he was clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. So there is heavenly garment that he is that Christ was wearing, and there's heavenly garments that we are going to wear. Now, this would be enough. Now, if, if this was all heaven was... This would be enough. You know, a lot of people, a lot of artists will show heaven where there's some guy sitting on a cloud with a harp and he's in a white robe and he's just not hurting. He's not in pain. He's in comfort. And that if, if that was heaven, that would be enough. The reality is, as, as wrong as that perception of heaven is, and we're going to get into that here, as wrong as that perception is, if that was heaven, that would be enough. Because the hell that people depict is not hell. Where they show a bunch of people sitting around in lawn chairs, fanning themselves with flames all around them, and they're trying to drink some lemonade and try and stay cool while little devils run around with pitchforks. That is the furthest thing from what the Bible describes as hell. And if you begin to understand the depth of the torment of hell, then you will begin to appreciate anything that would be better than that. This earth is so much better than hell, it's not even funny. People say we're going through hell on earth. We've got war. We've got plagues. We've got famine. Let me tell you today, i got a brother who got chemical burns all, all over part his left side of his body. And today, as he sits there with skin grafts trying to heal, he is in a better condition than anybody in hell. And anybody in hell would gladly trade him places. If a, if a man in hell could do it, he would let himself get dunked in a vat of caustic and get sent to the hospital to live a hundred years in torment and agony compared to what he's in in hell. We don't get it. We just don't seem to understand it. We think if the sun's too hot, if the air conditioning breaks, if things like that happen, that we're going through hell on earth. Oh, I had a flat tire and it's hot outside and I'm sweating and the sun's burning my skin and I'm working hard to try and get this flat tire changed. Those are the things of the earth. We've got to set our affection on things above. There's something so much higher 
this earth, life on this earth is so much better than life on hell that it is unimaginable. The torments of hell described in the word of God are beyond all human reasoning and ability to even comprehend We just get little fragments. As much as heaven is beyond our comprehension in its goodness, hell is beyond our comprehension in its horrors. The devil himself is going to be tormented in hell. People act like hell is a place that the devil can live in happily. But the devil himself is going to writhe in agony and torment for eternity in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is real. And death and hell shall be cast into the lake of fire comes in Revelation just before in Revelation 20, just before the chapter 21 that we're going to look at as we talk about things that are above. Now, these things that are above, if we could get out of the problems on earth and just get to relax on a cloud with a harp and a white gown, as sissy as that is and as silly as that is the way it's depicted, that in and of itself with eternal life and no fear of death and no pain and no sorrow and no heartache, that in and of itself would be a a prize worth gaining. That in itself would be a treasure worth seeking after. But that's not heaven. That's just a, a minor idea that's derived from what heaven is. So here, if we had food and raiment for eternity... And we had that peace and comfort of the food and raiment. That would be enough, but there is more. We're going to look at that. He says there's a name that no man knows but him that has it. A name that he's going to give to his beloved that overcomes. And this speaks of intimacy. This speaks of uniqueness. This speaks of being loved individually. We don't even have time to cover the ground we've got to cover today. This speaks of uniqueness. Think about how this world struggles for uniqueness. Everybody wants to do something to set them apart from the crowd. They, people get depressed and go into depression and kill themselves over the fact that they're just one of billions and they can't see any point. They don't know why they're, they don't even see a, a purpose in existing because they've been lost in the multitudes. And they see the thousands of heads walking down the street. And they're just one of those heads. And they don't really matter. They don't feel like they matter to anybody. Nobody really loves me. Nobody appreciates me. And they sit down and play a song on the piano. And somebody else has already played it better than them. Everything you try to do. And we're going to get into that. We're going to look at that. Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Saith the preacher. That which hath been has been already. And people get lost in the multitudes and they have no sense of personal worth. But to God, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, he will give you a new name that no man knoweth but he that hath it. You will be an individual. Yes, there will be multitudes in heaven, but you will be an individual, loved individually, unique and set apart and separate. And guess what? He'll love you like you're the only one there. This is beyond comprehension. How can these promises hold true for everybody? It takes an eternal, an infinite God to make these kinds of promises and to be able to keep them. He'll love you like you've never been loved. You will be his special darling. Close to his side. We're going to see that here. It says that on him I will write my new name. On him I will write my new name. God has a new name. He's got a new name. 
He said it, not me. He's got a new name he's going to reveal in heaven. Now, if you want to tell me you know God's new name, I already know you're a part of a cult. I don't want anything to do with you because he's going to reveal that new name in heaven. I will write upon him my new name. Now, what does that speak of? That shows us identification. That shows us belonging. That shows us security. You write your name on something you want to keep. You write your name on something that is special to you. And he's going to put his own new name on those that overcome in heaven. And that could be you. He'll put his own name upon you. When you put your name on something, you're taking ownership of it. You're taking a degree of pride in it. You're taking a responsibility for it. You're saying, this is mine, and I'm going to care for it. It gives that belonging, and it gives that security that we need. As much as we want uniqueness, uniqueness in and of itself is an empty hole. How many people have gone off all by themselves into the wilderness and lived for 40 years in the wilderness all alone, their own man? And at the end of that time, it's an empty hole because they don't belong to anybody. They found uniqueness, but in their quest for uniqueness, they found solitude and they found loneliness and they found a complete lack of love and a lack of anything but themselves and they ran out of the gas they had to love themselves with. And now they're lonely. They've excluded themselves from everybody and everything and they're lonely sitting all by themselves in depression. So on the one hand, you have people lost in the multitude and they're in depression. And you have people sitting alone by themselves and they're in depression. But in heaven, you are going to be unique. You are going to be loved with an everlasting love. You're going to have a new name that no man knows but he that hath it. And you're going to have God's new name written on you to tell everybody around you that he is your beloved and you are his. Now he says here that he will... With the new name, it says he'll also give the name of the city, New Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second. Um, it says here that he will make you a pillar in that city. You'll go no more out. This talks of stability and establishment. Now, as much as you want to go and do, you want a place to come and rest. And here, God is giving stability and establishment in heaven. Hallelujah. There are people who go crazy for lack of stability. There are people that go crazy from too much stability. We'll look at that in just a second. You see, in heaven, there's everything. Every fulfillment of every godly desire, every fulfillment of every godly drive will be in heaven, multiplied beyond the sun, beyond the stars, beyond what you can imagine. It says here that he'll make a pillar and you'll go no more out. You'll be established. You'll be settled. You'll be strengthened. You'll be un unmovable. That pillar will be in the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is a home. It's a home. It's a city. It's a house. It's a place. Jesus said in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. In my father's house, he says, are many mansions. Now, if you want to go in for one of these fake Bibles where all you get is a room, go ahead and find get your apartment in heaven. I get a mansion. Bless God. Hallelujah. My Bible tells me it's a mansion, and I have the very word of God. And in heaven, there are mansions for his beloved, and I've got a mansion that's mine in heaven. You say, how can you be made a pillar and not go out and yet have a mansion and live in it? I don't know, but I believe it. 
And I believe all of it. And I believe God's able to make it all work because this stuff's so far above that we're just getting little glimpses and we just see through a glass darkly. But someday we're going to see face to face. Now in this mansion, in this city, in this new Jerusalem, this place where you're a pillar, where you go no more out, there's going to be a tree. And that tree is in the paradise of God and that means gardens. That means there's going to be beauty. It means there's going to be peace. It means there's going to be tranquility. It means there's going to be relaxation. It means it's not going to be sterile modernism all over the place. It's going to have beauty. It's going to have life with a river, with trees, with the beauty of nature that has been purified. Hallelujah. And if that wasn't good enough, if all that wasn't good enough, he said, I'll give you a white stone. Now, what does that white stone mean? What good's a white stone? If you walk up to me and give me a white stone today, I might not just think that was the greatest thing. And I don't fully comprehend what that white stone is going to be in heaven. But I will tell you this. It means that you will have possessions in heaven. Now, you think you've got possessions on earth. And you're all about your possessions down here on earth. But there's going to be possessions in heaven. Hallelujah. We try and accumulate. We try and build up. We try and build our worth. And the moth and the rust decay and destroy. But in heaven, there's going to be possessions that have incalculable value. They will be possessions that will never decay. These possessions will be Free from all intervention of the enemy and they'll be free from decay. You won't have to lock your mansion. You won't have to lock up your valuables and you will have valuables in heaven. You will have things that belong to you. Now you say, what's the big deal? Why would I need things if I was in heaven? Listen to me. God created things. God created personal property. God created personal ownership and personal responsibility. And there's going to be possessions in heaven. Now, your possessions are going to depend largely on your performance as a Christian as to how well you follow the master. Performance is not measured in production. Performance is measured in submission, in how much you follow the master and how well you obey the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. All God asks you to do once you're saved is follow the master. You'll have possessions. Now beyond the possessions, he says, I will grant with you to sit with me in my throne. And this speaks of nearness and daily involvement. Get this, with the governing affairs of the sovereign almighty God. That's beyond my comprehension. There are people today who struggle with a feeling of unimportance. You feel like nobody really cares. What you're doing doesn't matter. You work in a little business. Maybe you you're making um, maybe you're making tin cans and every day a row of tin cans go by goes by in front of you by the tens of thousands and you check them and you check them and you check them and you come back the next day and do the same thing and there's no real value in what you're doing apart from just getting a check to buy some temporal food and pay rent for a temporal house and try and keep some temporal electricity so that you can wash your temporal clothes so that you have the strength to get up and go look at a 10,000 cans again 
the next morning and it begins to drag and you know more than a lot of people vanity of vanities all is vanity you're putting a wire nut on wires you're nailing a nail into a wall you're turning a wrench on a car and you do it all so you can get a little more money so you can go do the same thing the next day and it just wears on you day after day but I'm telling you in heaven we're going to have a nearness with Jesus Christ and a daily involvement with the governing affairs of the sovereign God of all creation. It doesn't get any better than heaven. You can't imagine the depth and the greatness and the glory that awaits the sons of God who've been born again by the Spirit of God. We will sit with Him in His throne in heaven. Imagine being involved with God the Father's discussion with God the Son about which way Jupiter should go. This is beyond our comprehension. I think of people sitting on city councils and they have knocked down drag out fights for two months about whether to put a water pipe on the left side of the street or the right side of the street. I'm telling you in heaven, the one who controls the water, the one who made the water will have you involved in the governing affairs of the entire universe. Hallelujah. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. He says also, you will rule the nations. Now, how are you going to rule the nations if you're a pillar and you don't go out anymore? I don't know. But I believe it. I don't understand everything here by a long shot, but I believe it. So here in heaven, we've got a ruling of the nations. That is a purpose, and that is a position, and that is something of value to do for the Savior. So not only will you have heavenly food, not only will you have heavenly raiment, not only will you have an established place and stability, not only will you be loved individually and uniquely as if you're the only begotten even of the Father because you will be in Christ, and in Christ you have all the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily you will also have identification not only will you have that identification in the new name of God himself the sense of belonging and the security but you'll have the stability and the establishment of being a pillar you'll have a mansion you will have the trees the paradise the gardens you'll sit with him in his throne and you'll have a job to do that you love there is nothing wrong with work only a pervert hates all work it takes a sloth to hate all work. What we hate is not work. Usually what we hate is the curse and the stupidity of the job that we get stuck with. But the work that God has for us in heaven will be a purpose and a position. It'll be something of value to do. Something that you will enjoy doing with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. speaks about how the armies in heaven come with Jesus Christ and his coming. So how's that going to work if you go no more out? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. Jesus Christ was with God while he was on earth talking to God and while God was talking to him. And he was God while he was doing it. And if we're like God, we can be in heaven with God, sitting in the throne of God with God, with Jesus Christ, while we're going out from heaven and ruling for God. Hallelujah. And I believe it. And I believe all of it. It's going to be glory. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. 
By now I hope the things that are beneath are beginning to look small in our hearts. Because the things that are above are beyond all comprehension and are not worthy to be compared. The things that are beneath are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The Bible says, Revelation 21, John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and this is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God spoke these words out of the mouth of John. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away and he that sat upon the throne said behold I make all things new and he said unto me write for these words are true and faithful and he said unto me it is done I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely he that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son now it says here in Matthew six nineteen, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. It talks about the grass that withereth. It talks about the flower that fadeth away. Here on the earth we've got moth and rust. We've got thieves. We've got temporary condition of everything that we hold dear. Your money can dis- disappear tomorrow. And it doesn't have to be any explanation. War can ravage. Famine can wreak havoc. Plagues can come through and kill. Dogs tear and swine trample and rend. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, saith the preacher. He tried it all. And he enjoyed it all. And at the end of everything that could be found on this earth was vanity and vexation of spirit. At the end of pleasure, there was vanity and vexation of spirit. At the end of entertainment, there was vanity and vexation of spirit. At the end of great projects and buildings and governments and kingdoms... And international affairs, there was vanity and vexation of spirit. And at the end of it all, he had nothing left. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at one man. You could read the whole chapter if you like. And you'll see many people who chose just like this man. But this one man looked at things that were above. He set his affection on things above, not on things of the earth. You cannot serve two masters, said Christ in Matthew 6. You cannot serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You've got a choice to make. Now, your choice will more show and reveal who you are than it will change who you are. <coughs> your obsession reveals your condition, and your choice will reveal your condition. Your choice will reveal you, not make you. If you are His, you will choose Him. If you are not His, you will choose the world. Now here's a man who chose God. Verse 24 of Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. 
esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assigned to do, were drowned. Study the life of Moses. Imagine Moses, one of the great rulers of Egypt, who according to historians, which I don't lay much stock in, and according to Acts, the Bible says he was learned in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Egyptians. Historians say he was a war hero for the Egyptian cause, a general. He had military conquests, if that was true, but I take that with a grain of salt. The Bible says he had it all, and he turned away from all to gain Jesus Christ. And in gaining Jesus Christ, he lost everything. Jesus said, he that will save his life shall lose it, but he that shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels shall find it. Go to Revelation 22. As we go there, Hebrews 12 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Now I want you to think just for a moment about how we are commanded to lay our, set our affection on things that are above, and Jesus Christ left the things that were above to come down and redeem foolish, fallen, sinful man. The miracle of love and grace is beyond our ability to grasp. Exponentially beyond our ability to even grasp. That we would be considered the joy set before him. Revelation 22 and verse 10. God tells John here, and he saith unto me. He does it through his fellow servant who's a prophet there. Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. And this transitions into the words of Jesus Christ. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. I'm telling you there are things that are above that are worth dying for and they are worth living for. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. There it is right there, Jesus Christ, our bright and morning star that God has given us. Some Bibles call the devil the morning star. You better watch out what Bible you're using. This Bible, the King James Bible, says that Jesus Christ is the bright and the morning star, and we will be given the morning star. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. 
come and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely here it is here is the call to you here's the call to you if you're saved but you've gotten your eyes off of Christ and you've gotten your eyes on this world you've gotten your eyes on the temporal on the here and now and you've been entangled in the affairs of this life and you're following after things that have no profit things that are vanity and empty the spirit and the bride say come there's eternal riches and eternal reward waiting in heaven what is it worth to you here's to the lost the cry come and let him take of the water of life freely lost man you're drinking poison water you're drinking water that your body half the time has to fight all the stuff and the junk that's in it i don't know what's worse water out of an old creek bed or water out of a city treatment plant but all of it's got junk in it you don't want there's a water of life and through it god offers you eternal life and christian there's a water of life the word of god get in it the bible says for i testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book if any man shall add unto these things God shall add unto him that are pl- plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Christ laid aside heaven's glory to redeem us. How much more ought we to lay aside the pleasures of this life to gain eternal glory? Jesus Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.